0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have been talking about Spiritual Cooking 101. Tonight, we're coming to the section called Interpretation. I read this story about a professional boxer who had been converted to Christ and as a Christian he's beginning to wonder can I be a boxer and a Christian after all I beat people up for a living so he went to his church and he asked the leaders the response he got was I don't see why you can't continue the Bible says it's better to give than to receive (laughs) is that a good interpretation? We laugh because we realize this is really off the wall. But sometimes it's not so off the wall. It's subtle, we don't know. We interpret the Bible incorrectly. And we don't get the fullness of what God wants for us. We have been talking about this spiritual cooking. Pastor Skip started it out by showing us his library along with little icons of people who do music or used to do music. And we looked at his library, saw his study. Dave came in and talked about the right tools, having a good Bible and and Bible dictionaries and other resources at our hands. Nick talked about having the right approach, the reverence for the scriptures and the reverence for God. Neil last week talked about observation. We are moving now into this area, this observation, interpretation and coming, not by me, by someone else, application. When Neil talked about observation, the question was, what is there? When you get that plate of food in front of you, you look down and say, there's the meat, there are the potatoes, there are the vegetables, there's the milk, that's what's there. When we look at the Bible, the first thing we say is, what is there? I'm not trying to interpret it. I'm not trying to figure out what it means. I just need to know what it is. What does it say? What are the words on the page? And, and he talked about a flyover view where you look at this big, broad area, and then a ground level view where you're trying to get right into the nitty gritty and then digging deeper, going into word studies. We move now from what is there to what does it mean? It's one thing to look at it and read it, but it's another thing to look up after having read it and say, now, now what did that mean? I want to give an example. How many of you have kids at home? Okay. How many of you have ever been kids at home? Okay. That should be everybody. Now, I want to give a phrase that you've probably heard or used. Go clean your room. You're familiar with this phrase. The interpretation of the original author, usually the parent, is... A place for everything, everything in its place. You vacuum the carpet, you dust, you make your bed. There is nothing out of place. Now, there is another interpretation by the hearer. It goes something like, out of sight, out of mind. Under the bed, in the closet, as long as you can close it. Why make the bed? You're only going to mess it up tonight anyway. And dust gives character. So we have to struggle with what is the interpretation of clean your room. The fact is we need to go to the author. What did the author mean? What's the original intent of the person who spoke the words? That is where we are today in the Bible. Interpretation is... What does it mean? When I talk to my kids about cleaning the room, I go beyond, I want you to clean your room. That means, and then I have to, anybody else No one. I'm talking about? Okay. All right. I'm not alone. All right. In order to understand interpretation, what does it mean? There are five questions we will ask and answer. You take the Bible text, you see what's there. You read it, you look through it. And now I'm coming from, now that I know what's there, what does it mean? To get the interpretation, there are five questions. The first question is known as literary interpretation. What do the words mean? Literary interpretation. What do the words themselves mean? There's a word in the Bible we've all heard of. It's the word flesh. We go through the New Testament and we see things like Mortify the deeds of the flesh. The flesh is evil. The flesh is wicked. We need to crucify the flesh. We need to put down the flesh. We need to deny the flesh. And so we get this idea that the flesh is evil. However, Jesus Christ became flesh. Does that mean that Jesus became evil? No. There are actually 10 definitions to the word flesh in the New Testament. The problem is we read something and we think, oh, this is what it means. Words have multiple meanings. I'm going to take a passage you're familiar with. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Master, we know you are from God, for no one can do the things you are doing unless God be with them. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born from above or born again, you shall not see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus responds, how can a man be born again? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus said, are you a leader in Israel and you don't even understand this? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say you must be born from above. You see, the Greek word can be born from above or born again. Jesus meant born from above. Nicodemus misunderstood born again. And so there's a confusion. And this debate then gets into this religion. It's not because of your faith in your religion. It's not because you're a Pharisee. It's not because of any of these things. It's because you depend on the Spirit of God to give you a new birth from above. Words have multiple meanings. That's one in looking at literary interpretation. Does the word have more than one meaning? I I mentioned the word flesh. The Bible speaks of the flesh as just a physical body. And the Bible speaks of flesh as the carnal nature. And I want to give this illustration. How many of you, and your students know this, how many of you have ever gone to an all-you-can-eat place? You know, what I'm talking, I love those places. I wear sweats that day. Come on, you do too. You know what I'm talking Kind of fast, a little bit. And you get in there, you pay your money, and you go and you get a plate. I, I get two. And, and then, and you go through the, and you put more food on there, than you would normally eat in three meals, right? And you go back. Some of you are more disciplined than me. I've got a problem with gluttony. But nevertheless, you go back at your table. And, and, and the secret is to eat fast before your body knows you're full, right? And then you finish it. And your body is saying, stop this. Don't do this. But your carnal flesh is saying, you know, you can get seconds. And after seconds, your body says, stop stop! And you're thinking, there's dessert. <laughs> your body is just your body. The Bible says in Romans 12, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies to God, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. We are to lift up holy hands to Him. We are to dance to God, you see in the Old Testament. We are to clap our hands to God. We are to look to God with our eyes. We are to love Him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to offer the sacrifice of praise through our lips. God created us in his image, body, soul, and spirit. He will resurrect the body. I emphasize that because there's an issue that came into the church because they misinterpreted the body and said it was evil. There was a group called the Gnostics in the early church that said, spirit is good, physical is evil. And spirit is like the light bulb in the middle of a football field. Where the light is, is bright and good. And then it emanates out until eventually it's darkness. Darkness is the body, the physical. The spirit is good. Jesus, they would say, never came in a body. He was like this projection on a screen. Or this holographic image. And if he walked on sand, he left no footprints. And and so they got this heresy that crept into the church. Light, darkness. It was dealt with. But today, we're a little more subtle. Sometimes we think... If I could just be in tune with the Spirit, I could be a man of God. I could be a woman of God. If I just really understood in my inner man, I would be a better Christian. Now, glorify God in your bodies, your temple. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have the treasure in earth and vessels. Love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't split yourself into pieces. Paul says, I do have this war in my members... Which is true, we have a sin nature, but God will resurrect the body and give us a new one without a sin nature. Don't separate these. It leads to heresy. Do words have dual meanings? Literary interpretation. Do words have dual meanings? There's another word that we use, the word hell. In the Old Testament, it's Sheol. In the New Testament, it's Hades. In English, it's hell. Hell can mean this place that was created for the devil and his angels. Hell can mean The place of the dead, the grave. And so Peter, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has fallen, preaches the first sermon in Acts 2, and he quotes the Old Testament. And he speaks of Jesus and says, You will not suffer my body to remain and be corrupted in hell there's another passage that said jesus descended into hell and so this doctrine came up oh hell is always the lake of fire so that meant jesus died on the cross and satan drug his wormy old spirit all down into hell and kicked him around in the fire for three days until he woke up properly well you know that's a false teaching it was his body that wouldn't see corruption on the cross jesus looked at the thief beside him and said today you will be with me in paradise jesus said it is finished paid for, completed on the cross. There wasn't a future payment that had to be made. Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So we have to be careful when we look at words. Is there a dual meaning? Nicodemus was confused, and he got the wrong meaning. Jesus was trying to lead him to himself. Nicodemus was confused about something physical. Sometimes we look at words, and we put meanings in that aren't supposed to be there. Literary interpretation is, what do the words mean? mean that's number one the second question is contextual interpretation we move from literary interpretation what do the words mean to contextual interpretation what is the context contextual interpretation what is the context it's been well said a text out of context is a pretext have you ever heard of people who say, well you know i just I, i pray i say okay god i need your direction today so I'm going to get this Bible, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to let it fall, and I'm going to put my finger down. And, and, and God's going to tell me what to do. And uh, as the story goes, one man did this, and he put his finger down. He says, Judas went out and hanged himself. Oh, no, no. Okay. Okay, um, okay God. I'm going to give you another chance here. Go thou and do like... No, 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 no. Don't do likewise. Okay. Um, what you do, do quickly. Okay, this doesn't work. The context... Is not one verse. The context is how did it fit together? In the story of Nicodemus, John chapter 3, again, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, You've got to be born by the Spirit. It's not about your religion. It's not about your knowledge of Israel. It's about being born again, being born above by the Spirit of God. And Jesus would go on to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. He's showing him it's a matter of faith in the Son and not a matter of works in religion. Whosoever believes in him Should have everlasting life. It's not a matter of keeping law. It's a matter of faith in Jesus. He's trying to change this man's perspective. That's the context of this. Romans, of course, is another context. In Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, it deals with sin. Romans 3, 23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The bigger context is Romans 1 says, all those pagans who have rejected God have sinned. Romans 2 is, all those people who have religion are in sin. Romans 3 is all those Jews who think they're following the law but are not are in sin. All have sinned. Progression of thought. We have to go back and say, what is the context immediately? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yes. Who is all? Those who don't know God, those who practice any kind of religion, those who even have the right words and the right book but they don't follow it. Progression of thought. The context. Literary interpretation, number one. What do the words mean? Contextual interpretation. What is the context? The third question we must ask is called grammatical interpretation. Grammatical interpretation. What does the grammar show? Grammatical interpretation. What does the grammar show? Early on as a Christian, I was taught you must not know just what you believe. You must know why you believe it. And I was trained by a man who was an apologist. And as he would train me, I would get into conversations with unbelievers, cultists. Walter Martin was my teacher. And so I'd, I'd get in conversations with these different people on, on college campuses and things uh, because it's a lot of fun. And, uh, and, and there would be cultists, sincere, devout people who've been lied to, not enemies, and i'd get into conversations and i'd hear this well you know it's just semantics I said, Well, of course it's semantics without semantics we couldn't talk to each other there'd be no ability to communicate we must understand semantics we begin by saying what is the literary style when we're saying grammatical interpretation what's the style is it poetry he is the apple of my eye I will cover him under my wings. I am the door of the sheepfold. Does God have an apple stuck in his eyeball with wings and feathers? No, it's poetry. It's poetry. There's prophecy. Speaking of things that are going to happen in the future and usually using symbols. I look at the book of Revelation. It says, and you've got the sun and the moon and the 12 stars. And you what is this? Well, you go back all the way into Genesis. And it's referring to the tribes of Israel. We have to understand the context. Maybe it's just real simple history. Maybe it's poetry. The wisdom literature is written in, in what they call parallelism. Hebrews use parallelism. We use rhyme and rhythm. Roses are red, violets are blue. They used parallel thoughts. The righteous man is like a tree planted by the river. The unrighteous is like one that withers. And so it's parallel thoughts. What are we dealing with? What is the type? What is the style? The other is, what is the relationship of the words? And here's the key. The relationship of the transition words. Transition words. There are words like, and, therefore, because of, then, after this, before this. Words that take two clauses and put them together. Jesus was angry and he rebuked them for their hardness of heart. Four is the connector. We have to find, when we're looking at the context... The connectors. That's the secret to putting the sentence together, taking it apart and putting it together. It gives you the meaning. The other that's very, very important, especially in the Greek, is finding the verbs. Verbs are past tense and future tense and present tense, and they've got all this great stuff like past pluperfect and errorist and all these things for those people who study Greek and they love to say these words and let them roll off, and you say, Yeah, and then you roll your eyes. So it's, it's, It comes down to the Greek tense is amazing. I want to just look at a couple of verses in one passage. This is Romans chapter 5. Remember I said the first three chapters dealt with sin. Everybody's under sin. Romans 4 then says, So therefore, how can this righteous holy God allow sinners into his presence and says it's justification by faith? Just as Abraham believed God, it was accounted as righteousness. And so you're justified by faith, just like Abraham. Now Romans 5 says the benefits of justification. I want you to notice, as I start reading, the change in tenses. It makes this verse come alive. Therefore, which connects to 1 through 3, all have sinned, 4, now you're justified. Therefore, having been justified by faith, having been justified, past tense, with continuing effect, we have, present tense, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also... We have obtained, past tense, our introduction by faith, present tense, into this grace in which we stand, present, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God, future. Do you see the switches? As you read through this, he's, he goes past, present, future, past, present, future. Jump down, if you would. I don't have the verse in front of me. It's much more than. It's, it's uh, about verse 8 or 9. Much more than having now been justified past tense by his blood we shall be saved from the wrath of god through him what is shall be saved past present future future because you are justified you're going to be saved from wrath to come not because of what i'm doing today but because i believed in him and he will see me through look at the tenses in the greek so we're looking at literary interpretation number one what do the words mean contextual interpretation. Number two, what is the context? Immediate context, big context. Three, grammatical interpretation. What does the grammar show? Especially the connecting words, therefore, wherefore, and the verbs. Then we look at number four, one that I think is probably one of the most important. Historical interpretation. Historical interpretation. What is the background? The Hebrews had a language that was pictorial. The Greeks had a language that was conceptual. The Latins had a language that was legal. And you find whenever the message was put in a different language, it took on subtle nuances of meaning. We have English, which is just a hodgepodge of everything. It's, it's not a pure language. It just, it's a lot of languages brought together. And so these different cultures would see God in their culture. We need to look through their eyes and not our eyes. We need to say, what did he mean then? What did she mean then? Not, what does it mean to me now? That's application. Application's great. We need it. But we don't jump to application. We must know, what did it mean to the person who said it? So when, do, when we do this in historical interpretation, the first thing we look at are the manners and customs of that era. And there are lots of books like Manners and Customs of the Bible. I recommend having those side by side because they follow the Bible. Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, Exodus, Leviticus. They follow the Bible. They tell you the culture of the time, the climate. You know the color water they're swimming in to help you get the interpretation. Jesus, back to John, is talking to Nicodemus, and he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that he might draw all men unto him. Okay, fine. But they would have understood. That went back to the book of Numbers. It went back to the children in rebellion and rejecting God and God's provision. God sending judgment as fiery serpents into the camp. Everyone bitten will get this poison within them that would kill them. The people crying out. Moses getting instruction from God. Take a brass serpent, brass symbol of judgment. Put it on a staff. Lift it up in the middle of the camp and say, Anyone bitten who has the poison, if you just look on this, you'll be delivered and saved. Now Nicodemus is hearing something different. Everyone has a poison that will kill them. But if they look to the Son of Man lifted up, they can be saved. The poison can be removed. We'll pass over that if we don't understand what the background was. We pass over it if we don't understand what their culture was. Also parallel passages. Under historical interpretations, it's understanding what was the culture. What was their understanding? when they looked at something, when they did something. What did it mean? There's a big battle that goes on in the New Testament over circumcision. Because the Jews thought one way, and they were trying to bring it into Christianity. And so there's this battle that's going on in the book of Galatians, and the book of Acts, chapter 15. What did it mean then? There's also something called progressive revelation. Adam and Eve are now facing God having eaten of the tree that they were not supposed to eat of. Judgment is being pronounced. And God says, I will put enmity between thy seed and the woman's seed. And you shall bruise his head, he says to the serpents, but uh, you shall bruise his heel, God says to the serpent, but he shall bruise your head. Now, Adam and Eve, hearing this, did not understand that Jesus was going to be the Messiah, the son of David, of the lion of the tribe of Judah. That revelation wasn't there yet. There was no Abraham. There was no Moses. There was no 12 tribe situation. What we have to be very careful of when when we're reading through the Scripture is to stop at the period of time where they are. What did it mean to them? Rather than trying to take a whole bunch of other stuff and put it in there that didn't belong. We do that today. We will take 20th century American culture, 21st century, whatever you want to call and drop it into the Bible and say, this is what it means. No, it doesn't. It meant what it meant to the Jews of that era, to the authors of the Bible of that era that's the correct interpretation application can be varied but we must take the interpretation according to the progress of revelation granted the new testament will give us details that the old testament doesn't have the scripture tells us that they wrote these and they desired to look into them but we now have a more full revelation and can look into them that's good we have a more full revelation but we can't change the interpretation the original interpretation we simply look at it as part of a whole picture it's a piece of a puzzle but we don't try to stick the whole puzzle inside that one piece. What it meant to that person is the truth God wants to teach us. Manners and customs, progressive revelation, parallel passages are a key here. As you read through the Bible, Genesis is progression. It starts at a time and it goes through time-wise. Exodus is progression. It starts and time-wise it moves on. Leviticus is not. It stops. It rolls back into Exodus. Numbers is progression. Deuteronomy is not. It rolls back in. Then you start getting to 1 and 2 Samuel. They move forward. 1 and 2 Kings move forward. But 1 and 2 Chronicles fall back on top of 1 and 2 Kings. All the wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, roll back into the time of the kings. Most of the prophets roll back into the time of the kings. We have to look at parallel passages. Things don't stand by themselves. Think, for example, of Jesus teaching on divorce and remarriage. It's a great topic, but it's incomplete. After the church was birthed, Paul had to go back and readdress. So what happens if you have two people who are married and one becomes a believer and the other is not? Jesus didn't address that. There was no church until the day of Pentecost. So, we have to look at the context. We have to roll it all together and see what it meant. And remember, the key is that the New Testament is a Jewish book. It's not a philosophical treatise. It's not a book from America. It is a book written by first century Jews. And when we see it through those eyes, it takes on a life and a meaning that that would put most of church history to shame. Look beyond church history to the first century. Historical interpretation. So we've looked at literary interpretation. What do the words mean? Contextual interpretation. What is the context? Grammatical interpretation. What does the grammar show? Historical interpretation. What is the background? And the fifth question we ask is the timeless interpretation. How does your interpretation balance with the rest of Scripture? This is where it gets fun. This is where you find somebody who interprets a certain passage over here without realizing it contradicts another passage over here. Let me take a classic example. There are some who teach what's called the gap theory. They go back to Genesis chapter 1, and it says, In the beginning... I'm sorry, in the beginning was the word. I'm in the wrong place. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. And they interpret the earth was formless and void as the earth became formless and void. And they say, well, this is what happened. There was an earth, there was a civilization, there were people, plants, animals, and then Satan rebelled and everything was destroyed and it sat in this darkness for a gap of time, this long period of time, which is why we have this evolutionary time scale and stuff. And then God came back and he started recreating everything, which sounds good except for the rest of the Bible. Um, if you were to take Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, which says that Lucifer was created as the anointed cherub who covered and walked in the Garden of Eden before sin was found in him, it means Satan didn't fall until after the creation of Adam and Eve. So it kind of puts a hole in the gap theory. It's, it's a problem for him, but it's because you compare the scriptures. other comparing of scriptures has anybody ever dealt with someone who has been deceived by a cult they come they come to your door and they're talking and and one of the big things that cults do is they deny the deity of jesus christ they deny the trinity and they'll come to your door and they'll start saying well you know jesus was just a man and they'll start quoting verses well you know jesus said the father is greater than i jesus said i don't know the day or the hour and we are saying no jesus was god and so we start quoting other verses back the fact is they're right what you do is you say, you know, you're right. He was a man. And let me give you a few other verses. He used to get tired, sleepy, hungry. He was a man, 100%. And it throws them off their game. Then you say, however, you can't use those verses to discount other verses, such as, in him, Jesus dwells the fullness of God bodily, Colossians. Or Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not count his equality with God something to be held on to, but humbled himself and was made in the servant as a servant of man or how about paul saying our great god and savior jesus christ just because it says this here doesn't mean that it discounts that and that's where we have problems the sovereignty of god versus the free will of man is one there are a lot of verses that talk about the sovereignty of god and i believe in the sovereignty of god but you know there are a lot of verses that say man has free will choose you this day whom you will serve of any tree in the garden, you can choose to eat freely. Oh, free will. Interesting. The Bible teaches both. Just as I can believe Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, I can believe that God is 100% sovereign and man has 100% free will. I don't understand how they work out. God's smarter than me. I don't always understand how God does it, but I understand that God did it. So the problem with this timeless interpretation is taking one set of verses and using them to discount others. The entire Word of God is the foundation for all interpretation. Our five questions. Literary interpretation. What do the words mean? Contextual interpretation. What is the context? Grammatical interpretation. What does the grammar show? Historical interpretation. What is the background? Timeless interpretation. How does your interpretation balance with the rest of Scripture? Now I want to kind of apply this. I want to take a passage that I know you're all, or I'm pretty sure most of you are very familiar with. And I want to ask some of these questions. Jesus told his disciples that he must go through Samaria. Samaria. He arrives at a well in a place called Sychar at 12 noon. The disciples have gone to buy food and a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And Jesus says, give me something to drink. And she says, how is it that you being a man and a Jew would ask of me, a woman who is a Samaritan for something to drink? Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, And the one who said, give me to drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, flowing water, not water in a dead pool, but water coming out of a spring. Her attitude changes a little bit. Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where are you going to get living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well? Drink it this well. Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Everyone who'll drink of the water I will give will never thirst again. Sir, give me this water that I may never thirst. Go call your husband. I have no husband. <laughs> you have rightly said. Because you've had five husbands. The man you're living with now you're not married to. The mass comes off, and instead of dealing with relationships, she does what most people do. She gets religious. Well, you know... The Jews say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem, and uh, we say we're supposed to worship on Mount Gerizim. <laughs> and Jesus deals with that. Okay. You guys don't know what you worship. The Jews know where the, what they worship. The salvation is from the Jews. But I'm telling you, the hour is coming and now is that those who worship God will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Not in Jerusalem, not in Mount Gerizim, but in spirit and truth, for God is spirit, and He seeks those to worship Him. Jesus becomes silent. and The woman said, well, okay, um, you know, there's a Messiah coming. When he gets here, he'll tell us everything. Jesus says, I, who am speaking to you, am. I am. Now, we're familiar with the story, but you ask questions. What's the context? The context is, the bigger context is the gospel of John. John finishes in John chapter 21 and says... If everything written about Christ were recorded in books, the whole world couldn't contain it. But the things in this book were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and believing you might have life in his name. So it's about bringing people to believe. The Gospel of John has no parables, no public discourses. It's all one-on-one witnessing. Jesus meeting with Nicodemus, meeting with this woman, meeting with others, or training his 12. No public discourses. Jesus is leading someone to himself. That's what the book is all about. That's the context, and the context is a story. But then what's the culture? You know, there are three roads that went from Jerusalem, where Jesus was coming from, to Galilee. One went through Samaria. No good Jew would ever go through Samaria. One went all the way west to the coast, many, many miles out of the way, up the coast, and back into Galilee. One went south, down around the Dead Sea, eastern through Gentile territory, up around the Sea of Galilee, and back into Galilee. Because the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. These were half-breeds. These were people who defied God. They only believed in the Pentateuch. They were heretics. And this woman was a hussy. No good Jewish man would ever talk to a woman, let alone someone who lived this immoral life. Jesus says, give me to drink. He broke all cultural barriers. This woman grew up in a culture where women being married was everything five times men had said you're not good enough get out her dreams this isn't what she planned now a guy says you can live here you can share my bed but you can't have my name that's not what she dreamed about when she grew up she's coming to the well at noon no one comes to the well at noon this is all history you came in the morning when it was cool or in the evening when it was cool with groups of women when it was safe not in the middle of the day she was shunned by even her own people. Second-class citizen in a second-class hated group. And Jesus left the 99 to go after the 1. Historical interpretation. Confusion in words. Jesus says, I'll give you living water. He's referring to the Old Testament. God says, they've forsaken me, the spring, the well of living water, and have digging for themselves. digging." have dug for themselves that didn't come out of me Neil's got a mic backstage okay and dug for themselves cisterns which were just holes in the ground of rancid water you put water in a hole in the ground and let it sit for months and then you drink it it tastes funny And Jesus is saying, I want to give you the living water. He's referring to God. He's referring to the wells of living water. This is a woman who was living with a cistern of water that was rancid. This was a woman that all her life, all she wanted was, she just wanted a house and a white picket fence and 2.5 kids, which is the average in America, or 10.5 kids, I think the average there. She just wanted love. She just wanted acceptance. She was rejected by every man in her life. And the man who took her now wouldn't even take her. This isn't the way she planned her life. And yet Jesus says, in all the emptiness and all the pain, I will give you living water. I will fill your life. I will give you hope for the future. It takes on a lot more meaning when you see it in its culture. out of his being will flow rivers of living water. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews more than even the Gentiles. It adds more meaning to Jesus telling a story about the good Samaritan and then asking the question, so who did the most good? Who helped? And the Jewish person wouldn't even say the name Samaritan. Well, I suppose the one who helped the most. They hated the Samaritans. Jesus didn't hate anyone. So we look at interpretation. What style is it? History, poetry? This story? is just history. It's a conversation. What's the context? Overall, the context is Jesus came to lead you from wherever you were to himself in life. What's the grammar? It's about living water rather than dead cisterns. It's about life coming from within you, not coming upon you. It's about being filled and overflowing rather than circumstances dictating who you are. It's about finding meaning and fulfillment in God when all the world, even your own, have turned against you and rejected you, and all your dreams have been shattered. Because it's not the way you wanted life to turn out, but that's the way it turned out. And yet Jesus is there. Historical interpretation, oh, it's simple. These people were hated for many, many reasons. Without going into them, there was a racism that went beyond anything you could imagine between these groups. Because of wars, because they were half breeds, because they rejected everything but the Pentateuch and were considered heretics, because they set up other temples to worship God rather than the Jewish temple, they were hated. Timeless interpretation. Has your life ever turned out the way you didn't plan it? Have you ever felt rejected, even when all you wanted was to be loved? Have you ever looked around and said, I didn't want it to turn out this way? Jesus comes and says, I will give you rivers of living water. And out of your being it shall flow. It's about Him. It's about coming to the well of living water and rejecting the cistern of empty water. Interpretation. What does it say? Not what does it say to me? The application falls out of the interpretation. So I have a question for you. Has your life turned out the way you want it? Has anything gone wrong in your life? Have you said, Oh, but I just don't have that inner life. I don't have that springing. I don't have that joy. Unspeakable and full of glory. I don't have that peace that passes understanding. I am not content if you're a believer I invite you to go back to the Bible and interpret the words of Jesus correctly and you will find the rivers of living water spring from his words if you're an unbeliever there's nothing I can do for you you are headed toward hell unless as the son of man was lifted up you come to him So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather as a corporate body and to love you through worship, to love you through looking at your word. You are our God, our great God, our Savior. We love you because you first loved us. We follow you because you have called us. And Lord, I pray for us now. You said where two or three are gathered, you were there in the midst. Lord, those of us who have said, this isn't the way I planned it. Lord, help us to find new hope in you, new faith in you. That we might correctly interpret the word of God and have rivers of living water gushing forth, content in you, pleased in you, peaceful in you. Not because of circumstances, but because Jesus Christ has lifted up. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that Lord, you would convict them of sin and righteousness and of judgment. That they would not walk out of here today with their destination in eternal hell assured, but they would walk up today and have their destination with you eternally secured. In Jesus' name. Amen.